Hello again. I presume that now you can hear me online at home. Uh, my name is Tim Mantrill. I'm Colgate's Director of Alumni Affairs, and welcome again to Living Writers 2010. Uh, we're happy to have you with us. We are a few minutes late today. Uh, we're in a different location, and we've had a chance to have a reception out front uh, with our author today. Um, the room is still gathering, but we wanted to get online and say hello. There are parents and alumni uh, around the country and the globe watching with us today, and thanks for joining us today. If you can take some time throughout the book uh, reading to say hello to other people that are online and uh, lob in a question. It always helps when there's questions from home uh, that we can bring into the classroom. It's okay, of course, if there aren't, but it does help if we can get uh, some folks at home saying hello. So what I'll do is there'll be a pause now for another minute or two uh, as we get settled here. But again, welcome, and we look forward to the class today. Thank you, folks. Radowat Lapsharoensap was born in Chicago and raised both there and in Bangkok, Thailand. Learn, leaving to come to Ithaca, New York, right around this neighborhood, for his senior year of high school, he then went on to earn a BA from Cornell University study, studying Asian American history and literature and, by his description, just beginning to write. A, as he is called, he says, by all but bureaucrats, then went on to get an MFA at the University of Michigan, studying with a number of eminent writers like Charles Baxter, who recognized an outsized talent, as well as, Baxter says, all the marks of hard work and an attention to craft. Indeed, his thesis advisor, Eileen Pollack, tells the story that, to her own great surprise, she assured A's worried mother he would have a long and successful career as a writer. Indeed, he would be rich and famous. <laughs> what teacher in her right mind would tell <laughs> such a thing to a mother, she said. But she did it because she knew just how strong the work was, as now do we. We have here the author of Sightseeing, a collection of short stories published by Grove Press, set in Thailand and published in 2005, before the events, natural and political, that have recently been at the forefront of world attention. Sightseeing won the Asian American Literary Award. It was chosen for the National Book Foundation's inaugural five <coughs> under 35 program and was a finalist for the British newspaper, The Guardian's first book award. <coughs> Lapshire Rosenthal won the University of East Anglia's David T. K. Wong Fellowship, bringing him to England in 2004. His work has appeared in many places, including Granta and One Story. In 2007, Granta Magazine 
put him on its list of best young American novelists, a designation best young American novelists he parsed unsparingly. Indeed, he is an interviewee whose observations, as our students in Living Writers have clearly noted, always make pleasurable reading. Unlike other writers I know, he once said, I'm full of bad ideas. Or elsewhere and in a very different tone. We're talking about language, after all. Small and silent marks on a page. If those marks can evoke any recognizable human feeling or emotion, then that's a small victory. He is an interviewee whose observations make good reading, as of course does work that is, well, by all and any count, gorgeous. Emin the, currently the eminent visiting writer at the University of Wyoming, please join me in welcoming him to Colgate University. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you so much, Jane, for an amazing introduction. Um, and thank you to the Department of English here um, for having me. Do you, can you guys hear me in the back? Okay. Um, it's really great to be back in this part of the country. I really miss it since my undergraduate days. And in true style, it's raining, just as I remembered it. Um, so I'm going to read a new short story tonight. Um, the story is called In the 90s, and um, it's sort of an homage to a wonderful short story written by Leonard Michaels um, called In the 50s, um, which he published in a really beautiful collection of short stories called I Would Have Saved Them If I Could, um, which left a major impression on me when I first read it. Um, and so it's dedicated to him, um, even though I'd never met him. Let me just get my watch out here. Make sure I don't natter on too long. All right. And again, thank you for having me. In the 90s, after Leonard Michaels. <coughs> Everywhere you looked in the 90s, something was being torn down, something new being built in its place. Canals were filled in for city roads, Slums were leveled, highways completed. Buildings inched higher and higher into the smog. Offices, hotels, condominiums, banks. Foundations for the SkyTrain were laid, and ground had been broken for a subway system, a new international airport, a world-class convention center. Out of fields emerged shopping malls, housing developments, sporting arenas, parking lots. Gargantuan overpasses rose to span the city's more, con more congested intersections, Klongtan and Si Lom, Sa Thon and Lam Sa Li. The future was everywhere in the 90s. We were always being reminded of it. It was being constructed all around us, above us, under us. You practically had to wear a hard hat to keep from being hit in the head. Some of our parents bought their first car in the 90s. Some finished paying their mortgages. Air conditioners were installed. 
Kitchen appliances were purchased, microwaves, water purifiers, food processors. We started shopping at supermarkets in the 90s, abandoned the morning markets. Bathrooms were modernized, no more squatting, no more buckets of water. In the 90s, we learned to shit sitting down, clean our anuses with toilet paper. The first time my mother used the new bathroom, my brother and I were summoned to watch her turds pirouette down the drain. Isn't that wonderful, she asked us in the 90s. And Anan and I murmured our agreement, dumbstruck, embarrassed, but also silently alarmed by the color and the consistency of her excrement. It didn't look normal. It looked like nothing we had ever seen. But it was the 90s. Nothing was going to get us down. We thought that the worst was behind us in the 90s. The military was out. Democracy was in. There was peace in the streets. And the economy, oh, the economy in the 90s. It was booming. It was a tiger. We were going to be the new Japan. GNP, GDP, exports, median income, the stock exchange index, all seemed ascendant in the 90s. A middle class was also ascendant, and some of us were a part of it. Not rich, not poor, but somewhere comfortably in between. A new breed of people who no longer had to work with their hands. Some of us were not a part of this, of course. Some of us still worked with our hands. But in the 90s, more than any other time, there was optimism. Everybody knew somebody who had made a lot of money in the 90s. Biographies of successful businessmen sold by the tens of thousands. Fan Ting, the dream that came true, was the most popular television show in the 90s. Every Sunday afternoon, somebody would tell their life story before a live audience for an hour. Sorted, hard scrabble, pre-90s stories about poverty, abuse, neglect, disease, drug addiction, ungrateful children, etc. They always cried while telling their stories, and we always cried with them. It was always so moving to see this poor person weeping before a national audience. We were not yet suspicious of the things that we saw on television in the 90s. If you could have one thing in the world, the show's host would ask at the end of every episode, what would it be? And the person would say a little bit of money, or a train ticket back to their home province, or a prosthetic leg for their son, or to find their missing daughter, or dialysis. And invariably, the show's host would produce such things and such persons for them. And more tears were shed from the joy of it all, the joy of the 90s, when the lives of the downtrodden could be made a little better by going on television. I lost my virginity in the 90s on a marble floor in a rich girl's condominium while Fan Tipenjing was playing in the room with the volume turned off. I was practically howling from the momentousness of the occasion, from the cold and horrible embarrassment, and from the bruising on my lower spine, when the girl looked up from her seat astride me, peered at the television and said, a noodle cart. You could have had anything you wanted, and you asked for a fucking noodle cart. She crawled toward the screen's blue light to turn on the volume, a woman with an ashen face was weeping over a set of aluminum terrines. I had just told the girl that I loved her. This was said in a moment of profound panic, the likes of which I haven't experienced since, and which I now belatedly associate with the 90s. But all she could do 
was to recline her lithe, sweat-drenched body against the edge of her parents' leather couch and remonstrate against the limited ambitions of the poor. Few of us understood why we said what we said in the 90s. Some of us wish we hadn't said anything at all. We spent a lot of time in shopping malls in the 90s. A new one seemed to open every month. We didn't really go to buy things. We went for the free air conditioning, the food courts, the mad wonders inside. There was a zoo on top of one, an aquarium in the basement of another. Macaques screeched as they swung from post to post. Dugongs floated through the liquid ether like sedate albino spacemen. There was an Olympic-sized ice skating rink where I first held hands with the girl I would eventually lose my virginity to, the girl I would say that I loved, while we clumsily negotiated the ice together like fawns testing our new legs. There was a roller coaster that traversed the entire length of a mall, dipping and looping across the cavernous fluorescent expanse. Teenagers would smoke weed in the parking structure and go ride that coaster for hours. It was something else to hear their collective screams echoing around the Galleria, high above the subfrequent din of the mall's light jazz, the thousands milling below, the disembodied announcements for a lost child or an illegally parked car. That's the sound I hear now when I think of the 90s, a bunch of stone kids yelling their heads off while they rose and dropped and rose again to awesome precipitous heights. Anand and I convinced our mother to ride that roller coaster with us once. She had seemed strangely silent all afternoon, none of the usual chatter or murmurs of delight as we strolled past the mall's gleaming shop fronts. We thought that the roller coaster might cheer her up. She took some convincing, of course, but eventually relented. As we strapped her into the seat between us, she said, this is a machine for yahoos and kids. This is not a machine for an old woman like me. And when we made our initial ascent, she hooked her arms tight around each of ours and stared unblinkingly at her feet, her lips pressed together in a grimace. Amid the cacophony of the ensuing ride, while we hung upside down for a moment from the mall's glass and steel ceiling, I turned to glance at our mother. She was still staring at her feet. She had not made a sound. Her face had turned a pale, yellowish tinge. Ma, I yelled at the mauve sky glowing below us, high above the beams. This is supposed to be fun, Ma. And Anand in tone was something similar. But soon as the world corrected itself by a swift mechanical swoop, I heard our mother say in a strange banshee voice, you shut your mouth. All of you just shut your goddamn mouths. I'm fucking dying over here. We laughed. We had never heard our mother swear before. We would never hear her swear again. And when she screamed that last little bit, the bit about dying, we thought that she'd been speaking figuratively. Because in the 90s, we often took figuratively what we should have taken literally. Things were never the things themselves, but always something else. Buildings were never simply buildings, but signs of our collective prosperity. Industrial parks heralded our emergence onto the international economic stage. New highways were the roads we'd all take to a resplendent national future. And so we laughed at our mother as that roller coaster tossed us around the Klieg lights. <coughs> Excuse me. In the 90s, we learned to speak English. It was the world's lingua franca, we were told, the language of international business. You could practically hear the money ringing around in it. So we took lessons and dictations. We conjugated verbs, learned our tenses, 
practice pronouncing our H's and our Z's. We bought shortwave radios and listened to the BBC. We tried to decipher British and American pop songs. On summer nights, we'd go to Kaosan Road or Soy Cowboy so we could get drunk and practice speaking English with Farangs. We needed to get drunk to talk to them. It was the only way to work up the courage. Before the 90s, most of us had never been closer to a Farang than the polite distance of a photograph. We'd wake up the next morning remembering little of what we'd learned, though we'd sometimes have pleasant, light-saturated memories of the language rolling off our liquor-loosened tongues like we'd been speaking it all our lives. My best friend in the 90s was a boy from Naratiwat near the Malaysian border named Gawin Panchangtong. Gawin was none too popular at school. He was shy and knock-kneed. He had blotchy, coal-black skin and a provincial accent that he was at pains to hide. And he spent too much time reading sports manga. But he thrived on summer nights in the 90s among the Furangs. He became a different person then. He'd wear one of his ironed NBA jerseys, waddle up to some white girls at a bar and say, how do you do? My name is Kevin. I am not handsome, but you are beautiful. <laughs> and more often than not, the girls would laugh and buy us all drinks. They thought he was so charming and funny. Thai girls would have told him to go back to the Malaysian border. In the 90s, late one night, he said, I am a poor Thai boy from countryside. I come from farmerland, so you buy me whiskey, yes? And when the girls asked him what he'd do for them in return, he turned to me and said, my friend and I dance secret Thai dance. We will do this for you, a secret Thai whiskey dance from Water Buffalo Farmerland. <laughs> you're kidding, I said in Thai, smiling stupidly at the girls. Tell them you're kidding, Gawin. The bar fell silent. All eyes suddenly seemed fixed upon us. OK, one of the girls finally said. She and her three friends turned to face us, resting their elbows on the bar. They were hippies, far as I could tell. Bandanas, beaded necklaces, fabrics with vaguely Asian prints. What are you waiting for? It's a deal. You two do your dance, and we'll buy you a round of whiskey. Here's the plan, Gowin muttered to me in Thai. I'm the buffalo. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> as far as I knew, there was no such thing as a Thai whiskey dance from Water Buffalo Farmerland, and I was pretty sure that the Farang girls knew this too. Just then, Prikinu broke out on the bar sound system, one of the most popular songs in the 90s, a synthesized dance number which compared the singer's love interest to an unbearably spicy chili pepper. In the 90s, there was a brief, inexplicable fad of pop songs that compared women to condiments. Uh, true story, by the way. <laughs> I am Buffalo, you see, I heard Gawin's voice declare in English above the music. And when I turned around, I saw my best friend hopping and galloping knock-kneed back and forth across the room, his fingers held up to his forehead for horns. He is my farmer, he said now, pointing at me, and I am his buffalo, and now we do our dance. I stood there before the Farang girls, not knowing what to do. I did a lot of that in the 90s standing around not knowing what to do, overwhelmed, bewildered, astonished. 
I asked myself questions I often asked in the 90s, such as, questions such as, why am I here, and what am I doing, and what do I want, and would my mother approve of this, and why am I best friends with a retarded black nerd from the <laughs> Malaysian border? Many of these questions had seemed in the 90s very important and very profound. Gawin continued to prance around the bar. The Furang girls were practically convulsing with laughter before me. Somebody started to clap to the music. There was a swell of cheers, of hollering, a leavening of the atmosphere. Soon, it seemed that the whole place had joined in. Some people got out of their seats and made their way to the dance floor, Thais and Furangs alike. Gawin wove between them all with his fingers still protruding from his forehead, his eyes bright with excitement, a grin smeared across his face, his voice singing along to the song, the refrain of which now seems inseparable from the 90s. A pepper that spicy, that delicious, should be eaten to the point of regret. What the hell did this mean, I wondered then, while the chaos mounted around me. Had the singer taken his metaphor too far? There was only one type of regret you could have over eating a chili pepper in my experience, and that regret was always digestive. <laughs> Relax, I heard somebody say. And when I turned around, I saw one of the Furang girls standing with a tumbler of whiskey extended toward me. Come on, she continued, taking my arm and leading me toward the dance floor. She was the first white person I'd ever touched in my life. Your friend over there has got the right idea. You Thai boys need to loosen up. This, she twirled her hands in the air and started swaying her hips to the music. This is the 90s. <coughs> in the 90s, it still meant something to get on an airplane. Tears were still shed at airports, handkerchiefs regularly used. Families huddled in small semicircles under Don Mueang International's floodlights, hugging one another, pressing each other's hands, taking photographs, as if they were sending their loved ones off to war. We weren't at war, of course. It was the 90s, remember. But when somebody disappeared through passport control, we often didn't know if we'd ever see them again. When our uncle Jirachai went to work construction in Bahrain, <coughs> our mother's entire extended family showed up at the airport, some from as far as Lopuri and the Konsawan. Even Gawin insisted on coming along. This is a big day for your family, he said. These kinds of things are just as important as weddings and funerals. My uncle's not dead, I said. He's just going to Bahrain. At the airport, we met people that we didn't even know we were related to. And during the three interminable hours of waiting around, in the 90s, we often arrived at airports excessively early. While the adults milled about in a dense familial mass, trading news, cracking jokes about each other's complexion and weight, recounting old stories so outrageous that they seemed, to our ears, invented and fantastical. And while some of our aunts wandered off to finger the duty-free, to rub lotions into hands and spray perfumes onto necks and sniff each other afterwards, and while our 80-odd-year-old grandparents sat sentinel by Uncle Jirachai like sunken, withered totems, refusing to let go of their eldest son's hands, while all of this went on all around us on that morning in the 90s, my brother Anan, Gawin, and I, in our boredom, slipped away to smoke hashish with a guy who claimed to be our second cousin. He had a horrible mustache. 
I hate to bring this up, Gawain said, when new cousin passed through the revolving glass doors ahead of us, but I don't think that guy's your cousin. I don't really see the family resemblance. Tell the nerd that he can stay if he wants, a nun hissed at me. He doesn't have to come. That's not a problem. In the 90s, Anand did a lot of drugs. I only did enough for my brother not to hate me. By that point in the 90s, I worried a lot about my older brother. I worried about what our mother's illness was doing to him. I worried about the French philosophy he was reading at the university and how it had made him humorless. I worried about how he was gay and seemed to be worried about it, even though nobody else really did. But in the 90s, I didn't really know how to talk to my brother. New cousin passed us each a cigarette which had been emptied of its tobacco and tightly repacked with hash. I thought we were doing drugs, Gawain said, twirling the cigarette in his hand. Anand shot me a look. I wanted to dive headfirst over the edge of the parking ramp and take my stupid best friend with me. Who the fuck is this guy, new cousin asked. Are you even in the family? That's so funny, Gawain said, chuckling, putting his arm around my shoulder. I was just saying the same thing about you. And by the way, Gawain added, smiling at new cousin, just so you know, something's died on your upper lip. <laughs> Anand laughed so loudly and heartily then, deep-chested, tremulous, that the luggage boys and traffic cops paused to look in our direction. I could have listened to my brother's laugh forever. The nerd's not so bad, Anand said finally, when he regained his breath, wiping at his eyes. And so, afterwards, back inside, as if through an underwater smear, the adults growing quiet as the time for Uncle Jirachai's departure drew near, our grandmother's lips trembling as if they might unhinge themselves from her wrinkled face, flutter up to join the sparrows twittering beneath the terminal ceiling. My uncle, wearing the construction company windbreaker, the lycra a green so bright it practically fluoresced, his weathered face a blank mask staring into the middle distance. The construction company representative checking his name against a clipboard. And now dozens and dozens of men like my uncle wearing that same construction company windbreaker, many of them beginning to line up for passport control, a mighty verdant army shimmering under the floodlights some with their families huddled close around them, while those without had on their faces so much sadness and jealousy and fright and doubt and resignation that I wanted to cover my eyes. In the 90s, my uncle and those men, and many more men like them, would build some of the biggest hotels in the world. They would work on scaffolding so high, under a sun so blinding, that they had to bellow old Thai folk songs into the hot desert air to try to temper the vertigo. And now our mother, who never cries, weeping into the hollow of her eldest brother's chest, without any inhibition, without any sound, her small back convulsing in his large ropey arms, as if she was shivering and he was trying to keep her warm. And me, only half comprehending then in the 90s, that they are doing this because they both know that they will never see each other again. Because our mother is sicker than anybody except a nun is willing to admit. And one by one, the siblings bidding goodbye to their brother, to Uncle Jirachai, whom I always admired and thought a cool guy, and who I suddenly remember had taught me in the 80s how to hold a hammer and drive a nail home. 
all of the siblings retreat in a semicircle so that our grandparents can say goodbye. We turn away now. It is too much. The sounds in the terminal suddenly seem too loud. The lights too hot and bright. And so the four of us eye each other from our places in that family circle. Anand, Gawin, new cousin, and I. Each of us tuned to our buzzing private frequency. Sly grins and hooded eyes and a small fist of laughter clenching and unclenching inside us like some riotous second heart. <coughs> we cremated her at the family temple in Sampeng, where our grandmother and grandfather had also been cremated just a few years before. By that point in the 90s, we'd been waiting for it for so long that we thought we'd be prepared. We weren't. Nothing about the 90s could have prepared us for that kind of thing. It was hard. It is hard to think of all that vitality and energy and love reduced to ashes in an urn. It was a small, quick ceremony. Everybody was there for, except for Uncle Jirachai, who sent us more money from Bahrain than we knew he could afford, and who called one night to say that there was work for me in the desert if I was interested. If I remember correctly, he said, you do know how to hammer a nail. But I told him that the economy was still a tiger in Bangkok and that I was actually no good with my hands. I also said my prospects were still bright for when I finished my university degree the following year. I told him I had big plans. This was a lie. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was still too full of grief and rage and confusion about losing our mother. And though I longed for a way out of the city, all I could think about when I talked to my uncle were those bright green windbreakers and the faces of those melancholy men. So I stayed in Bangkok in the 90s. Anand moved to the Northeast to work for an NGO organizing the rural poor. At the newly renovated Hualampong train station, my brother hugged me and told me that he loved me. He said that he would never have survived the last five years without me. I told him the same. It suddenly seemed on that train platform like we knew how to talk to each other again. He also told me that he was gay. I smiled and said, okay. I told him that I wasn't, that I was straight, and that I hoped he would find it in his heart to accept me for who I really am. <laughs> and then I told him about losing my virginity in that rich girl's condominium. And so we both stood there laughing on that train platform until it was time for him to leave. Gawin moved into the house with me. At first I said I didn't need the pity or the charity, but he said, I don't care what you need. I need the free rent. <laughs> he was working as an entry-level clerk at the Thai Farmers Bank by that point, sending money home to his parents in Naratiwat and saving to get treatment for his knockney. Before the 90s, when he was a child, his parents had tried everything, acupuncture, herbal supplements, massages, Buddhist chants, Hindu animal sacrifices, but it was only in the 90s with modern medicine that my best friend got the gait that he desired. The treatment took nearly a year, and on the day it was completed, Gawin and I got drunk and raced each other home, six long and dark kilometers across town, just to take his new legs for a spin. I let him win. In my own way, I also tried to get the gait I desperately desired. Work, liquor, sex, exercise, I even spent four months at a temple cleaning toilets, sweeping the courtyard, feeding stray dogs, installing a new sound system for the monks. 
But for a long time during that part of the 90s, nothing seemed to work. It was still hard to go by that urn on the small wooden shrine above the kitchen doorway, a shrine that my brother and I had built with our own hands and not feel like I was disappearing. My brother called me one day from the Northeast and said that he was coming home. What about the rural poor, I asked. I was hoping that he'd be there doing that forever. It was something that had made him happy. And so often, during those darkened days, it was solely by the light of my brother's happiness that I could glimpse the possibility of mine. Oh, I haven't given up on them yet, he said, chuckling softly. They're actually coming with me. He said that they were going to walk the 700 kilometers from the northeast to the government district in Bangkok to call for land reforms, to protest corruption in agribusiness, and to ask for government aid. They would pick up more protesters along the way. The journey would take a month. I followed the marches every move in the papers, called my brother daily on his cell phone to see where they were. I pinned a map of the country to the dining room wall to track their progress. I retrieved books from boxes that I had put away what seemed like a lifetime ago, economic histories and political theories and sociological studies that I was supposed to read while I was at university. I even read my brother's French philosophy books just so I could make fun of him over the phone. Day by day, they got closer. Day by day, the protests grew larger. One afternoon, my brother called and said, you'll never guess who I just ran into. You'll never guess who just joined the protests. Mustache except he doesn't have one now. They were 80,000 strong by the time they reached the outskirts of Bangkok. Gawin took off work so we could go meet them at the Democracy Monument and walk the last two kilometers with them to the government house. I took the urn down from the shrine and brought her along. We waited an hour in the rain with a thousand others before we could hear the protesters chanting and singing, coming from afar, like some spectral choir vibrating in the upper air. And when at last they rounded the corner onto Rajadam Nun, we searched for my brother Anand in that mass of humanity. When we finally found him, we saw that he was with the cousin, who was now unrecognizable in every way. And we joined them both there, the four of us together again, our voices raised among the thousands while the banners billowed around us, marching through a valley of cops. That was how we ended the 90s. Thank you. So I'm happy to take any questions, um, if you guys have any. Yes? This is a really big question, so feel free to treat it any way you like. Okay. Personal, professional, whatever. But I, I would like to hear you talk about what the advantages and disadvantages, disadvantages of being so fully bicultural are. Um, the advantages and disadvantages of being fully bicultural. Yeah, because um, I, I, in my better days, I hope so. Um, I, I think um, one of the advantages, as a writer at least, um, is that um, what seems familiar or natural in one place seems very strange in another. And um, that this is a sort of valuable um, technique even for writers that, um, or some of my favorite writers tend to make the familiar seem strange um, and tend to allow us to look at something which we are in the habit of looking at in a specific way. Um, suddenly look different and like something new. Um, 
So as a writer, I think that has been really instructive for me um, to know that you know, I can't put my foot up on a table in Thailand, but I can definitely put my foot up on a table sometimes um, here in America. And that, that kind of cross-cultural um, gap, um, I think, is uh, useful for me as a writer of fiction. Um, as a human being, I think it's confusing. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, it ends with the, with the boys um, going to this protest. I think, for the narrator at least, less out of a sense of a political conviction, but more as a, something else is sort of driving him to this protest as well. Um, as, as anybody who's paid attention to recent events in Thailand knows, there's been a great amount of upheaval politically um, there. Um, I didn't really imagine this story as somehow responding to that. And if anything, the protest movement that it refers to has very little to do with red shirts or yellow shirts or any of these sort of shorthand terms that you hear about in the news these days. But in my imagination, at least, it had to do with um, a movement in the late 90s called the Assembly of the Poor, um, which did have a very sort of moving march down to Bangkok and, um, and met with uh, indifference from the government after camping out in the city for, for almost a year and a half. Why none of the stories are written in the third person? Yeah. Um, well, the fancy answer would be um, because it fits the story I'm trying to tell. The unfancy answer, uh, answer would be because I'm still learning how to write properly in the third person. <laughs> um, and that I, I had, um, I think this particular story is sort of switches between um, the collective second person um, and um, the collective third person, sorry, and um, the first person. Um, and, and so this is sort of written in a, a collective voice, which it sort of slips in and out of. And I think um, this definitely, I feel, seems to fit what I hope is going on and people think is going on in this story. Thank you so much.